0: Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting and unique episode of the show that dives into the captivating world of animation through the incredible career of Melinda Dilger, Global Head of Animation Production at Riot Games. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I'm so grateful you're here tuning in, doing this live thing with me. If you don't already, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this and you don't subscribe, please take a moment to do so. It really helps grow the show and helps spread the word and help our community grow even larger. Today we embark on an adventure through the realm of imagination, where artistry and storytelling blend seamlessly. Animation has the power to transport us to new dimensions, ignite our emotions, and bring fantastical worlds to life. One series in particular has been capturing the hearts and minds of viewers worldwide, myself included. Arcane is a visionary show born from the collaboration between Riot Games, Fortiche, and Netflix. Set in the universe of the wildly popular game League of Legends, Arcane follows the tragic story of two iconic champions, sisters Vi and Jinx and the power that will tear them apart. It has managed to break through boundaries of what we thought animation could achieve. It's captivated audiences of all ages. And naturally, yes, the show has earned multiple Emmy awards, Annie awards, and a Lumiere award to name a few. I rarely gravitate towards animation as a viewer. So I was shook when I realized I had binged the entire first season. It compelled me to find out who was behind it. How did they do it? So I was thrilled when the Emmy award-winning Melinda accepted my invite to come on the show experienced leader in her field. She's worked with top players in town, including Walt Disney Studios, Nickelodeon, Universal, and others. She's been in animation for a long time. She's produced over 200 episodic titles and features, and is now overseeing animation production for Riot Games' television and film properties. So, without further ado, let's hear from Melinda. Okay, so obviously... For those listening, they've already chosen to tune in because they know how amazing you are and your your phenomenal resume speaks for itself. But I'm so really, I'm like so interested and curious to talk to you because you're the first person I've actually had on the show that really comes from a very different side of the business coming up through animation and now obviously working in gaming. I mean, I fell in love with Arcane after watching it and Of course, knew of League of Legends, but it was never I was not really a gamer growing up. I have two brothers who are gamers. So I've been in the tangential sort of gaming world, you know, adjacent most of my life but it was the thing where my brothers never let me have the controller so I guess I went to the arts instead. So here we are. There you go. Um there you go. But no, just you you have such a unique perspective on on the industry and of course your path is so unique and so I'm just so honored and thrilled to have you on to share a bit of your journey and wisdom with me and the listeners. So thank you for saying yes. Uh
1: thanks for having me. It's an honor. And thank you for your words. I'm blushing.
0: (laughs) Wow. So I guess take us to the beginning. You're from Texas. How does a girl from Texas dream this dream of whatever it was for you that kind of got you into the eventual path that led you where you are today? Gosh, what a great
1: question. No one's asked me that before in all the interviews I've had. And I really appreciate that question because I think it's a really good one. Um, I came out here to California To play basketball at a small college called Vanguard University way back in the day. And um, so I always wanted to come to California. I thought, this is where the cool kids are. You know, this is where I want to be. And I just wanted to get away from Houston. I mean, I grew up there. It's a great place. I love the city, I love the food. The people are amazing. I just needed a change. So I wanted to try something new and have a new adventure. So I came out here and um, studied journalism and TV production. I wasn't sure which route I'd go, whether I was going to be a journalist, a news producer, or if I would end up um, in TV production, but I just knew it was something that I really wanted to do. I've always been fascinated with movies. I grew up with my parents, you know, putting me in front of the TV or taking me to the opera or ballet or whatever. So I was always involved somehow in the arts with my parents. So I I attribute that passion for the arts to my parents Mm. Um, in college. In college, I used to go with this guy who was at that time my boyfriend's roommate to animation festivals. Just the two of us would go because we're like animation geeks. We just loved animation. So we're the only two that ever went from our school, I think. And then um I had a friend who worked at Disney and she, I was looking for a job, just a way to break in after I graduated into the business. Yeah. And she's like, look, we have something here in animation. I don't know that you're gonna want it. It's a PA job and you know, it's bottom of the barrel, whatever. I'm like, I'll take it. I don't even care what it pays. I I, I want that job. Yeah. So not knowing that I would pursue animation uh, when I got in, I just, as I was a- surrounded by these interesting people and artists and and just like musicians and all these different people, I was like, wow, this is something I actually really love. And I fit in really well here. Um, animation is, is made up of some pretty creative... Um, emotional, sometimes, you know, passionate people, but I fit in really well. So
0: I guess, what does that say about me, right? <laughs> it was a good fit for me. So that's how it all started. So then when you got there, though, you you weren't, it sounds like pursuing the path of maybe more of the art creative side of animation. So yeah. you you maybe, I don't know if you had tried it and been like, oh, this is great, not where my skill set is and found your niche to eventually find that sort of more production producer role, yeah. which it, it, we all know is needed. But I think like the one of the reasons I have this show is because few people can actually articulate what producers do anyway. And exactly. so it's not like you were given a brochure. I'm sure that this is like a path for you. So yeah. at what point did you get to piece together that you had the skill set? And that is how it could be additive. So here's the deal. I
1: love being in charge. <laughs> I like being <laughs> in charge. I like leading teams from the time I was like in little league playing softball. I always felt like I could do a better job than the coach because um, I was always <laughs> kind of strategizing and figuring things out. It's not that I could have, I just thought I could have. So it was yeah. like a little ridiculous. But when I got into animation, keep in mind, I didn't think it was a career path for me because I don't draw. I am not an artist. Um, I love to draw on a side, but I too afraid to show anybody, but I, I just am not good at that. That's not where Mm -hmm. my strength lies. My strengths lie in supporting a team and strategizing the best way to get from point A to point B. So from the time you get a script, how can we get that thing delivered with the Mm -hmm. amount of money and the resources that we have or don't have? Um, So it was just, it was just a natural fit. I love organizing. I love putting together the pieces of the puzzle and um, yeah. also nurturing uh, new talent and, and keeping the talent that's been around really happy. So it's just, I feel like that's where my skill sets really are. And it, it's turned out to be quite valuable, especially on
0: Arcane. Yeah, absolutely. And how the industry has shifted so much, right? I feel like animation yeah. in the beginning of times was like, I don't want to say the stepchild of Hollywood, but like certainly there was a big... Divide, you know, and certainly with the advent of computers and and how they can really scale animation, you had what Pixar was able to do and and how we were able to experience animation in a way that no one had ever seen or thought was possible um, and of course, from there on out it's just become like it's just it's everything now it's like that's how the interesting aspect of it, how it's shifted to where now those who do work in that field in a way, hold a lot more power over live action, um, especially in light of the current going ons in the industry and AI and, you know, all of these other technologies coming in, the the fears there from a creative standpoint. Yes. What are your thoughts on all of that? So
1: keep in mind, when I started in the business back in the stone ages, we actually had paper. So we would deliver, we would actually <laughs> have to pack up paper, and and copy like storyboards for hours at a, at a copy machine. And we would have to package these boxes up full of designs and, you know, cells and all those things. And then put some tape around it and hope to God it got overseas to where it's supposed to land. Right. Can you imagine? Wow. It was insane. So to like think that we went from packaging up, you know storyboards. And, um, there was no such thing as an animatic when I started. So it was just packing everything up and hoping to God that once it got over there, that it would be put together in a, in a semblance that, you know, actually worked creatively amazing. So, um, to go from that to now everything's digital is really it. I mean, I've had to learn a lot really fast over the years because technology has changed, yeah. changed at a rapid pace. It's interesting to see it all. Honestly, I don't think it actually gets done any faster. That's the weird part of it. <laughs> it seems like a slow process. But um, there are certain things that go a little faster. But yeah, it's still a slow process, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah. Okay. So then when you, you get into Disney, you start as a PA At what point do you start to figure out, okay, like, if I want to do X, if I want to be the person who's in control or in charge, these are the job titles, this is what I have to work towards? And how do you take those steps to work towards whatever that role or title was? Yeah, well... My, I used to complain
1: when I was a PA at Disney, because I was like, I have a degree, I shouldn't have to stand here and make copies of the copy machine, because I spent all these years getting this degree. So I wouldn't have to stand at a copy machine making. Copy. Now PAs do other things that are probably also not as uh, fancy. But um my dad gave me some good advice. He said, you know, this is the point where you need to make sure those copies look better than anyone else's copies.
0: Mm-hmm. And you need
1: to do- deliver everything with a smile on your face and be really happy that you're able to have that opportunity to do that there. And every day, just give it 110%. You don't want to give it 100% because that's what you're getting paid for. Give it 110% every day and always, always smile because people love being around that and it's contagious. Um, And those are the people or positive, it used to say it's all in your attitude. I learned a lot from my parents. Mm. It's all in your attitude. Um, I think tactically, um, so that's just, you know, inspirational talk right there. But tactically, I think it's important to learn everything you can every step of the way. And don't be afraid to ask as many questions as you possibly can starting out. Because 10 years down the road, if you still don't know that thing that you wish you would have asked, it looks really bad. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, it'll only make you more, um, more treasured and, and more valuable in your job, the more you know about the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I, I, from what I've gathered, there seems to be a lot of parallels between the live action path and animation. In fact, you know, I, I have um, my sister-in-law, and my brother-in-law, both are animate. Well, he's a storyboard artist, and she is a colorist for uh, yeah big, big uh, property that I won't name here. But, but we talk a lot about this. And it, when I learn about what they do in the parallels in the world I've come up, it seems like there are a lot of similarities. So for anyone listening who looks at the path you've walked and says, Okay, I want to eventually be a head of production or a producer or get into more of that side of things. What are those milestones that they should be you know, mindful that they're hitting in their career that will get them there. Sure.
1: So different studios operate differently. So the the titles are similar. So I, I know it right. It's very different than kind of how it was at Disney when I first started. It's probably a little bit different than how it is now. But typically, like for our our little animation team, it's you start off as um, uh, either a an administrative assistant just to like get your foot in the door or a writer's assistant. So you can understand the script process. Um, You want to be a production assistant. That's important. Mm -hmm. Um, First, I think to get into this line of work and then production coordinator, production manager, um, associate producer, line producer, and then um, head of production. There's also another path. And that is more of a creative producer who's working on the development side of things and the creative. So right now, like in our group, we've got it split up between the head of production, which is me for TV and film. And then we've got a head of creative for TV and film. And that person is the one overseeing the script process and bringing in the writers and really making sure the creative stays true from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. While my team does the more tactical, like, you know, Oversees the animation from beginning to end, and we've got a whole team at Fortiche in Paris that does a lot of the heavy lifting on the on the animation side. Actually, most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, in LA, we handle the scripts, the casting of the voices, the voice direction, um, and then and recording the voice direction. We send that to Fortiche. Fortiche actually does the storyboards, animatics, and all the way through compositing. They send it. A- We oversee the post-production sound and music.
0: So then the people that want to go up more of the creative path, is that just as simple as, because it feels very parallel to the development route, right? In live action, where typically you work a desk or you get into one of the agencies and, and you certainly can do that too now and leapfrog your way into the animation departments of Netflix or whichever studios, almost all of them have it. But is that a similar pathway to get to that role?
1: It's similar. It's similar. I think being a reader, being willing to like sit in and just read the scripts that come in and you can give the highlights and what you think of this writer Um, being an actual reader that can help out that creative executive is a huge, Um, a writer's assistant being in the room during the writer's, you know, rooms where you're just taking notes and learning about the process is so important. So I think all of those things can sort of lead you to that creative development position It is a little, it's a different track, though, for sure.
0: Do you find that there's sometimes disconnect from people who maybe have just come up on the creative to execution and production, where they maybe aren't as familiar with how certain creative decisions will impact production? And is that like, not a battle, but you know, there's this constant, like, you're constantly having to figure out how to work in both (laughs) spaces. Yeah, you know. That's why I always say, make sure
1: you love, love, love your showrunner or your your director. Yeah, because you both have to totally respect each other's positions, and yeah. and you've got yeah. each other's yeah. backs the whole time. I like it as well um, <laughs> a producer director team, and um, that you have to make this work. You're both getting paid to make it work, right? There's been a dowry that's right. been put out for you guys to be married and make this thing come together and make it a beautiful union. To me, I think one of the most most crucial points about being a good producer is being able to communicate with your director in such a way that they don't feel threatened and that they feel that you are on their side because you should be on their side to get their creative vision met on screen. But sometimes, you know, you do have these conflicts. Quite frankly, I haven't had them on Arcane, but I've had them on other, on other projects that I've been on and... Um, one in particular. Can I give you a little story? This is a funny one. Yes, please. So when I was at Disney, I was working with these guys, um, Bob Scanaway and Tony Craig, on a show called House of Mouse. I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard of it, but it was a fun Of show. course. It was a really fun show. It was very challenging. We had like we had like three shorts with wraparound material that had to be produced. So it was like this constant puzzle that you're trying to figure out how to put together. Like you can't have too many mini cartoons in the same uh, episode. You can't have any too many... Daisy, cartoons. So it was a whole thing. It was a lot. It was a very, very challenging process, but it was a lot of fun. But one day I went to um, Bob Scanaway, who was our executive producer at that time, and I was like, hey, you know, we've got like 70 props on this goofy short, and we only have budgeted like 10 per short. Can you just ease back on the props, or can we reuse some that we've done in another thing? And it was a very stressful time in our production. And Bob's looked at, looked at me and he goes, I just guess you don't want it to be funny. I guess that's, I guess you just don't want it to be funny. And of course, like it was the most ridiculous thing. And we both laughed about it because it's like, that's the dance though, right? It's like, well, of course I want it to be funny, but how are we going to meet this happy medium where we can actually make this work? So it's a constant, it's a constant dance and it's a constant, Yes, how do I get what I need from this person and still not jeopardize quality?
0: It's a very tricky job. And I mean, I know you said this in an interview where it's like producers need artists. Artists need producers. You know, we, it's like, you can't really have one without the other. hundred percent, absolutely. We balance each other out, but you know, a lot of artists don't necessarily know how to communicate well. And so sometimes the producers are there to help bring out the ideas, flush out conversations. What are some tools that you use that help you like that you've noticed in your career be really effective in working with different types of artists?
1: Well, a lot of it is kind of understanding what their goal is like getting to the end goal. What is your goal in the scene? What is your goal in this particular sequence? And then helping them sort of come up with some solutions, hmm. offering some solutions. Like, how would you feel if we did it this way? And I'm always like, how would you feel? Or um, would you mind if we looked at it this way? Or, you know, it's just it's just being polite and respectful. It's a relationship. Yeah. And a lot of it, too, is here's my dilemma. Help me help you. How can we do this together, right? Always pulling them in because a lot of times directors, creative types think that, you um, that's all on us. That's our problem, right? It's not always; it's theirs too. Everybody has to take ownership over it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it all—the pieces inform the whole, and it's not mutually exclusive, right? Like, like a decision you make here has a domino effect in whatever ways. And so, bringing people into the fold and having them involved in that decision-making process, I think it's important. And also, you know, in my side of the business, like producers often get a bad rep for being no people or being of the money, or they just are like bitter, angry people, and they're not creative, and they're not collaborative. And and certainly there are people like that in every industry. But there are some like that, actually. Yeah. But I think it's important, like to your point, when you can, when you can explain things is is it is an option. It's like, it's not a no, but it's like, you can have this here. But then that means you don't get this over here. So you tell me like which one is more important to you given the these challenges that we're having and we'll figure out how to make it work but as it stands you can't have both you know and i think posing those things like you said as questions as conundrums that we have a puzzle to figure out together
1: exactly and it's also like you know there used to be kind of an old school way of doing things um at some previous places i've worked where it was like you just got to check off the boxes if the boxes are checked off then we're done and if you look at the project is more than checking off boxes yeah it's a real creative thing that you, that is precious. So sometimes it's not the straight way to get there. It's, it's this weird roundabout way to get where you need to land to get that on the screen to where everyone's happy. So it's not just a straight line. It shouldn't be, you know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes with, with directors, I'll say, Hey, I know you want to get that thing done on this particular episode. If it's a, if it's episodic, do you mind if we think about for one of the future episodes where there's not as much like crazy fight scenes or whatever going on, that we really ease up and back off on some of the assets? And and oftentimes they get it and they'll go, Yeah, totally. Okay. It's like I'm giving you this. Yes. But can you give me a little something, something so that we're both you know what I mean? Partnership.
0: So we, yeah, exactly. We get our goals met. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I'm so curious because you, you know, you came up working at, at a time when, you know, Nickelodeon, I think, was doing really interesting work with like Rock, Rock was Modern Life and yes, I'm just so and, hey Arnold, and it's like, oh, that's very nostalgic Ugh. for me because that's the era of like, turn on the TV after school that I grew up into, like Doug Funny. Oh, my God. Like, just it's just and here's the thing, right? I find that for as evolved as animation has become I do feel like and perhaps this is just my perspective that cartoons of that time animated films of that time projects of that time were a little bit more risque they just took a lot more creative risk and I always wonder is that an advent of like how the networks used to function back then where it almost felt like people weren't really paying attention closely to what people were doing in the animation field. They're like, we don't care. Just like do it. Just have it be up on air. Like they weren't being micromanaged as much as it seems to be now where there's so much sensitivity with, oh, we got to make sure this doesn't, we can't upset anybody. And we got, like everything, it's just become this other extreme, right? Which we appreciate, of course, there's a lot of stuff from, um, you know, stuff from the 90s and the early 2000s that does not hold up. And you're like, whoa, yeah. that would never fly today. But I, I think that there was a lot more creative risk. And so I'm curious, like for you coming up at that time, working at Nickelodeon at that time, do you feel like the network involvement in the creative process, was different back then than maybe it is now
1: for sure i mean i think back then the executives were willing to just be funny now i think the funny meter is broken out there somehow yeah i just think what was funny back then just doesn't fly now and i see it in in sitcoms all the time from the past that you could not get away with rt bunker like the stuff that was on rt bunker No way. Or even the Carol Burnett show, which was, you know, squeaky clean. There were just things that were done that you can't get away with now. But back then it was, it was funny. And, and creators were not micromanaged. Right. Um, At Nickelodeon. I mean, I worked under Mary Harrington at that time when I was at Nick and she was an advocate for giving the creators and the creative team leeway to just have fun. And I think that's what made those shows so special. Yeah. You know, those shows had a lot of soul.
0: I think it also underestimates the viewer quite a bit, right? Because you're saying that you can't tell these stories through these perspectives that sure, like maybe question some things, but the intentionality and the moral compass of what those shows aim to do are still inherently good. Yes. That, like you said, like that no longer flies. And I I, I, it's just a disservice to, I think, the younger kids growing up because they'll, you know. It'll never be as good as it was in my day, kids. You
1: know, <laughs> like I, I know, I know. Well, I, I'm the same. I'm the same. And honestly, those shows hold a very special place in my heart. Especially, Hey Arnold. Um, you know, the, there was a big discrepancy about you know uh, Helga calling um, Arnold football head. Yeah, like maybe she shouldn't be calling him football head or stupid, which my mom would have had a problem with too growing up. So I can right. understand that. But that was the biggest like. Should we really have her saying these things? And I was like, yeah, because that's what kids do. So but you learn through that and you learn like the audience hopefully was smart enough to go. We don't really want to be as crazy as Helga. Hopefully the audience was smart enough to go. That's probably my favorite. It's a cautionary tale.
0: Yeah. It's
1: probably not a good idea to be with Elga.
0: No, and I think if you live in this world where everything is Pollyanna and everyone says all the right things all the time, you're actually doing a disservice to kids growing up because you're showing them a world that is not, especially nowadays, it's not anywhere near what it is, you know? And because of the advent of obviously TikTok and YouTube, it's like, well, those kids are going to get that kind of real life <laughs> slap in the face somewhere and wouldn't it be better for them to get it through their Sunday morning cartoons or or, you know I think
1: so otherwise we're putting them in a bubble and I don't think being in a bubble is good for anybody you know
0: yeah no that's really interesting how that's changed because like not even myself working that deeply in the space like I, I feel it I feel it in the quality of what's created like I said I have an in sort of like peek behind the curtain and and having um, some family that works in the space and some of the conversations we have around the challenges that they face with things that you're like, really? That was a note? Wow. You know, crazy. And then other things that fly that you're like, hmm, that should have been flagged. But you know what I mean? It's a little misguided. It's almost like this insane correction for something. And it's just too far. It's too far. And like you said, the meter, the funny meter is – Nowhere to be found. And I, I don't know how we get back there without taking more risks, you know?
1: I don't either. I mean, I remember the the craziest note that we'd get from our S P department at Disney was make sure they're wearing seatbelts, that the kids are wearing seatbelts in the car and helmets when they're riding bicycles. And I was like, Oh yeah, of course, you know. But it was
0: like, those were the notes. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> We're skipping ahead. I want to get to Arcane because obviously that's such a meat of where you are right now in your career. So tell me how this comes into your world. How do they find you, first of all? And what makes you go, yeah, okay, I'll go in. Because I I love that you have this quote where your first reaction to this was like, ugh, a gaming company trying to do animated TV series. Great. Like, that's going to be fun. Um, And, of course, they show you the pilot and you're like, whoa. But until that moment, you know, you are skeptical, understandably. So, yeah, tell me how... They was, you I was, I
1: was. Sure. So I had interviewed over at um, Universal for a Curious George movie. And I didn't get that job. But the person that I interviewed with that I had never met before that interview, she and I got along really well. Her name was Athena. I won't say her last name just in case, but super cool girl. Liked her so much. We just hit it off. She had a friend at Riot who was Jane, who was an executive producer at that time on Arcane. And she was looking for somebody like me. Athena gave her my name and she and I spoke, hit it off great. Yeah. And everything that she threw at me, as far as issues that they were having on the project at that time, she's like, the thing that I liked about you is that you didn't flinch at any of them. Like I was just like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. I've seen this before, you know, first timers never done this before, you know, all the things that come with, um, a project that's usually in duress, which somehow people find me for these projects that are in <laughs> duress. I don't know how they find me, but it happens. And so I think because I've seen it all, it was like, yeah, you know, okay. And I needed, I needed the work at the yeah. time. So, um, so it just shows to, it just goes to show you, you may be interviewing for one job and you have no idea that even though you didn't get that one, how it could lead to something else. So I was really appreciative to Athena, who I met. I sent her a big bouquet of flowers just as a thank you, because I so appreciate, like women looking out for other women, I think is a really important thing for us to always do in this business. Yeah. I think it used to be far more competitive. We used to be more competitive with each other. And I think those times have changed. I digress. So we will get there. To- I have a whole section on
0: representation. Yes. Fear not.
1: <laughs> okay, Good. good. Um, but for Arcane, so I came over, I met with Christian Link and Alex Y, the creators. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met with a bunch of people. Like I just, I came over there like, okay, this is like five or six interviews and in one day. And it was intense. But when I walked on Riot's campus, I was like, I mean, I really didn't know it was that big of a thing. I'm not really a gamer. I play like words with friends and bejeweled. <laughs> you know what I
0: mean? <laughs> That's yeah. it. like that yeah. I played guitar here before I was so I was a like, Sims girl until I was like all right yes. like, I need to go live my own life because I, my Sims yeah. have cool houses and much cooler careers than I do and I need to like turn this into my real life
1: <laughs> exactly so I wasn't ready for what Riot was like I walked in I was, and when I saw it was a legit company they showed me the pilot because you know I had no idea what I was coming into at all Um I was like, okay, I got to get my A game on because this is a serious company. They're doing stuff here. They're going to be doing more than just this. I could just tell, you know, Arcane was just going to be a t- iceberg as far as I was concerned, based on what I saw. Mm-hmm. And I saw that they weren't afraid to take chances. And I thought I saw that they were worth investing my time in because they cared about this, this project. I wasn't sure if they cared about animation. I think this was their first foray into it. I know it was. So they're like, let's just see how this goes. And I don't think Riot was ready for how popular or came. Yeah.
0: What a success. What a success. And I think what I love is like in doing my research is that, you know, you guys really set out to make something that was for the fans. And then you took the time and care to do it right out of respect for the fans, which we know a lot of other properties that shan't be named that say they do the same thing for the fans and then they're just like total flops. But then to go and become like a critically acclaimed show, it's like 100% of Rotten Tomatoes, to find a whole new audience. Like I count myself in that audience. Like I was grabbed from the very first moment of the pilot. I know you had a huge hand in that and a lot of the women that came on the show in different parts and kind of brought all the different skill sets to the table. But it is so unique and... It's, I think it's really raised the bar for everybody else in the space, you know, in a really cool way. So, like, how cool for you to get to be a part of a, a groundbreaking moment in animation like this, you know, on top of everything you've already built. I hope you, like, take time and realize how badass that is and that you're proud of yourself. Well, I'll tell you. On
1: behalf of the creators and the directors and the artistic team and the production team, thank you for saying that because there is no INT. That's true, Um, but I really appreciate it. Um, It's been, it's been a huge gift to me. There are people that could do my job, but I got it and I made the most of it and I I have embraced it a thousand percent because I realize. What a beautiful gift I've given to have this opportunity. So thank you. Yes,
0: absolutely. So then you come in, you say, all right, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to figure this out. Walk us through then how you helped them in a macro level of course just kind of come up with a production plan to do something that was completely new to them in many ways new to you because it's animation but it's based on a game and there's a lot of like they played with a lot of different styles of animation it wasn't necessarily just a lift from the game itself there were a lot of levels and layers to what they were doing so how did you start to put together that plan well it's interesting because i came in about three
1: and a half years four years into the process so they had already established a look for the show. What they hadn't established really was a, a, a an efficient pipeline mm-hmm. for what we were doing in LA. And Fortiche was still working out their pipeline as well. So I worked really closely with Hervé DuPont, who was the head of production at that time. Now he's general manager of Fortiche. But he is just a really smart guy, great guy. He had his hands full with the Fortiche side. and. I helped sort of build this uh, infrastructure for the LA team. When I first came on board, um, there was a guy named Mark Taylor who was actually in charge of DreamWorks Animation Mm -hmm. for a while. So he was consulting. So when I came on, I had him to really, like, just dig in, okay, where are the issues, you know, am I crazy for that? That I think this is weird, the way this is set up, you know, like he was my crazy meter, I would go, <laughs> am I crazy? Because of this? And he'd go, no, you're absolutely 100% right. This has to be done. I'm like, okay. So, um, so just building an, a, just a basic org, an org chart for what this is supposed to look like, working on a pipeline that makes sense for everybody, having um a brand new team who's never worked in animation before teaching them just the basics from beginning to end on how animation is put together Mm. and, and having certain people with their skill sets assigned to different things. Um, It was a lot. It was casting the the right people. It was building a team. It's hiring people. So yeah, step-by-step org chart, schedule, budget, pipeline, all those things had to be done and figured out. Bit by bit, but most importantly, I'll back up. When I came on board, the most important thing that I think I I did that really helped this team was I spent time with each person that was a part of our team and got to know them as people. Uh, Tell me about your family. What do you like to do? What are your you know? What do you like to do outside of work? What do you like about your job? Why do you like working at Riot? what's important to you about Arcane, and just asking those questions and getting them to open up. Suddenly I started to build trust with the team and they knew I was on their side. Uh, They had had issues with people coming in from the outside before that they felt were Hollywood types. And um, you know, going back to what you said in the beginning, I'm just a girl from Texas and I'm just here to get the job done. So let's do it together. Let's just do it together. Let's roll up our sleeves and we're in this together, but you've got my support 110%. So building that trust, I think, was key to getting this whole thing put together. All the other stuff's just basic. Of course, you have to do an org. Of course, you have to figure out a pipeline. Of course, you've got to get a schedule and a budget. Yeah,
0: but I can I can see how if you're coming in with just maybe more of a militant, here's how we're going to do it and get there. Is, is it effective? Absolutely, right? It's effective, but it yeah. wouldn't have worked. And the fact that you took the time to have a human connection first, because obviously you can do the job. They hired you for that. So that part's like the easy part comparatively. The big challenge and hurdle becomes how do you in a short amount of time build that trust to get everybody on your side so when you're guiding them through this process that is new to them for their baby is old hat in many ways to you though of course it's always you're always improving on the blueprint there's always more to learn um and i i just want that to really land with listeners because i think sometimes and i i speak for myself like in our rush or our excitement to step into new environments where we're maybe we're the the last one on the team it can be daunting to feel like you don't know how to navigate that space from a relationship perspective, because it's still art, it's creative, it's collaborative, it is relationship at the end of the day, it's partnerships, it's marriage, it's whatever metaphors you want to call it. But it takes that level of trust and intimacy that I think is so important and can often be overlooked. And and where I'll counter that point is that sometimes because it is a relationship business, and there is so much where you do live in the gray of personal per, your personal life blending into your work life, it can sometimes be nebulous and hard to navigate. I've also had those situations where sometimes you, it's really hard to untangle that web once you really get in there and build those relationships for better or for worse. And so, but I do think it's um, it it is what is required. And every producer I've had on who talks about how they navigate their careers that is a through line I think that is the same no matter where you are it's about who you are and how you show up and how you're going to be you know and I and I think that's so important because that's really at the end of the day all you have that's your real currency on top of course again we're everybody's assuming you can do the job, (laughs) the work can be done. But that's the the, that sort of unknown factor that I think everybody looks for. And I would venture to say could be a huge reason why you've been sought out so many times, because you seem to have this ability to come in and survey and assess in a calm manner, where perhaps there are, you know, people on fire, and some people just like, (laughs) losing their shit. And you can come in and go, all right, guys, let's, let's go for a walk,
1: <laughs> you know? Well, I appreciate the compliment. I wasn't always that way. You know, it came with age,
0: I think. <laughs> it ev- You evolved to get there, which is, I think, an it important note because I think uh, I'd love for yeah. you to speak a little more to that and maybe were there some experiences that helped you find that version of yourself so you could show up like that in in your work life? I found mentors and I've always learned by
1: observing. So that's, that's helped me. I'm not one of those people that goes out and has to make a bunch of mistakes to learn. Mm. I learn by observing so that I don't make those mistakes. So I find people that I'm like, oh, I really like the way they do that. And I love the way they handled that situation. From the time I was a PA on, I mean, I just grounded myself with people that were mentors that I could learn from and watch and observe. And then, How anyway, did you
0: forge those relationships early on when you're... You know those sort of lower person on the totem pole looking to people a couple steps ahead of you and developing those relationships in an authentic way you know, back
1: in the day, it was hard to do because there was, it was very much of a hierarchy status mm-hmm. where like pas shouldn't even talk period. Um now it's very different. Now I ask for everyone's and for you know input, input mm-hmm. on things problems. I ask for everybody's input because they're all in involved. And, and sometimes it's your PA fresh out of college that has a better idea just because they're coming at it fresh. So I ask everyone, but back then it was kind of, it was more difficult, but I think I did it anyway. And I, I just, you know, I would always ask about people's kids or like, what did you do this weekend? Or, you know, just make it more personal, but be genuinely authentic. And I think if you are, people know that they know if you're not, they know if you are, I think that's a big part of it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. People can really sense it. And I think it's why it's so important. Like I talk about this all the time on the show. And it's because it just genuinely comes up that the way that you elevate yourself and that you stay relevant and that you stay in the game, frankly, is by tapping into whatever that means for you. So you can be that version of yourself because that's what people want to have around and vice versa, you know, and we've all felt it when we've been in the energy of presence of others who maybe don't vibe at that frequency, I'll say, but like being authentic to who you are is so important. But I I'm cognizant of the fact that when you're younger, starting out in this business, sometimes that's hard to know because you can get really lost in like, the, the, the sparkliness of it all sometimes, you know, and you can get clicked in with the wrong group of people that could really throw you off your center. That's why it's, it's like your parents always say, you know, you have to like, look at your friends and they tell you who you are and look who you're in community with. And for me, what I always say is like, it's not good or bad. It's just that you have to have the discernment to zoom out every so often and go, is this taking me where I want to go? Is being around these people doing things in this way, taking me where I eventually want to go? It's not good or bad. Like that that could be a way of being that works for some people, but only you and have that internal compass for yourself. Um, and no one's going to like, very few people have the gift of having someone who has a mentorship sort of eye for them is going to pause and pull them aside and go, hey, like, You're hanging out with people that are going to like X, Y, Z, are you aware? You know what I mean? And just having that sort of guiding, guiding hand, not all of us get that. So you have to be discerning for your own self until you build that network, you know? I think so too. And I think, you
1: know, if I have advice for anybody that's trying to get in the business and stay in the business and grow in the business, it's, you know, one thing that I do with my team is I always say, my door is always open. If you want to have a one-on-one with me, schedule it and they do. You know the PAs do that. Like I have somebody who meets with me regularly and I'm like, "What's on your mind today?" And if they have questions for me like, "How can I go to the next level? How can I get to this next thing? What do I need to do? What steps do I need to do to get?" Because sometimes I get so busy, I'm just thinking about what's on my list and and it helps me to have them remind me, "Hey, I really want to grow. I'm like, Oh, yeah, okay, let's do it. You know, we're all human. So don't expect your boss to be superhuman all the time. You always be thinking about what's best for you, because they have a whole team of people they have to think about including themselves, and their boss making their boss happy. So just, you know, knock on their door, don't be afraid to ask the questions.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you said, then you ask those questions early on, and then you have the information. So as you rise the ranks, you don't You know, there aren't like big parts of the book that you never read (laughs) and you get there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And another thing that I, I feel that is important and I still do it. I do it regularly. I ask my team for feedback. I want to be a better leader. Is there anything that you have for me that can help me be a better leader to you as an individual or a team? I still do it. And I've been in this business
0: longer than most people, but I still do it. Because we can never stop growing, Yeah. right? Do you find that people are usually receptive to giving you that feedback, especially when you are in that position of leadership, perhaps? Sometimes.
1: Yeah. Sometimes. But then when they do give it, and I hear it, and I receive it well, it's like, oh, oh, she's really cool. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She's human, just like me.
1: Yeah. And then I always follow up like a couple of weeks later. Hey, have you noticed? Is it getting better? You know,
0: whatever. Yeah. So, that's, that's amazing advice that like, yeah, just because you arrive to a certain status or title or accolade, it doesn't mean you ever stop learning. And that's the big thing. I think the people that project that, you know, I don't know how they feel deep inside. I can't, I can't judge them for that. But I just wonder if it makes it a little harder to navigate life if you're constantly having to pretend like you have all the answers when we know no one does, <laughs> you know, no
1: one does. No one does. And I'm my worst enemy. I mean, I'll beat myself up for issues that things that I do, mistakes I make yes. more than anyone
0: will. You sound like That's all most of us. Of. Welcome to the club. Yeah. So yeah. one last question on Arcane before we shift away. But were there some any, aside from it being the first time for the creative team and working with Fortiche in France, were there any unique challenges to this from an animation perspective that perhaps you had not encountered in all your years? That's a good question.
1: I think, honestly, this part for me was so challenging in the, in the respect of we're doing this for gamers. That was the initial thing. And so keeping in mind the gaming community and working with Riot as a gaming company versus Riot, the entertainment animation company. So that was very unique for me. Mm. It wasn't challenging in a bad way. It was just, oh, now I have to start thinking about this which I've never, ever had to think about, you know, the gaming community when I've done animation and how things are going to be received and making sure that we're communicating with the right people within the company that can give you those answers.
0: Um, So that was challenging.
1: I don't know. Every project's challenging in
0: its own way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys, it took what, six years? Is that correct? A long time. A long time, but look, paid off, you know. Are you guys working on a second season? It, would you, we okay. are. Okay. How is that going?
1: It's going great. I think the fans are going to be so excited. It's looking good. Do you think
0: that is the timeline a little shorter now that you guys have dialed some stuff in or does it still take about six years?
1: Yeah, it's a little shorter, but it's still going to take a while. Yeah. Um, and I can't tell you exactly when because I'm not allowed. Of course. But it will it will happen, and I think the fans, everyone's going to be really happy, I yeah. think.
0: Do you feel like there were a lot of things that, from the org production perspective, on now, on the other side of it, were you able to, like, go in with your wrench and fine-tune a lot of things that made the process even more seamless? And certainly there were new challenges, of course, this go-around too, but, like...
1: It's so much better now because people know their jobs, they understand how it works, they understand how yeah. everything together and, and making decisions way, you know, now that could affect us way down the the production pipeline. Like, okay, now I get how this affects that way down there. Mm-hmm. So everybody's starting to understand how this works. So it's much better yeah. than season one. And that I'm not teaching every single person. Um, Ugh. one thing that I, do on season one is I'm like, Hey, can I just have one production manager that actually comes from the animation business to be my right hand? Because I was like, I can't, this is really hard to do on my own. Yeah. To just teach everyone without one person speaking the animation language. So I did bring in Dave Wong from, from Warner or from Warner Brothers. I think he was at Warner Brothers. He was also at DreamWorks. So that was good. Um, And he's been He's been a real dream. We have a great team. Yeah. I mean.
0: Well, you guys, you've built an amazing team. And I think so much of this business too, though, is an apprenticeship style business, especially from the production side where, yes, there's only certain experiences you can have. But at the end of the day, you sort of have to be thrown in the deep end of the pool and just get to the other side with, you know, everyone hopefully not drowning. And then you you get there, but then everyone has learned the process, like in a deep, real way that, like you said, you don't then have to try to explain Theoretically, things that they now actually understand in practicality, and and that's truly the only way. I don't know how anyone else does it. I don't either. You just got to do. You just got to. Got to get in there. Yeah. No, absolutely. So speaking of doing, uh, you know, thinking about representation, obviously in Hollywood as a whole, it's still like dire for women, but there's a lot of progress being made. There's. You know, there's still a minority of of women producers, lead producers, even though they're still producers across the board when you look at the data, even from from the last few years, Um, certainly in live action, it's dire in an animation, even more so because it's a smaller industry. So do you feel like there's any difference to to that from when you started to now? Have you seen it shift in any major way?
1: I think it's better. I think it's a lot better. Yeah. Although I've seen a lot of women in this business and and I feel like, I almost feel like there are more women in this, in the producer role in animation than there are men for the most part. Why do you think that is? Well, I have to be careful because people get their feelings hurt. So I got to think about how I'm going to put this. I think women have a uh, maternal instinct that is very nurturing. And I think that helps a lot in animation because it's a sensitive, it's a sensitive group um artists are sensitive and it takes a certain amount of empathy i think to understand how to navigate that sometimes yeah. get to a goal is that okay to say yeah Gosh, 100%
0: so no no it's it's no different than every yeah no live action commercials like any any other type of content that there is a creative at the helm it's it's really the same thing and it's why some could argue women generally make better producers because they have this ability to not just be maternal, but also wear all the hats that need to be worn. They can be, um, nurturing, but they can also be assertive when they need to be, they can be a lot of different things, um, because that's just the nature of what women have always had to be. So it's a lot easier. We, we have to multitask. And and that comes from this idea that back many, many, you know, in the beginning of civilization, men had to be focused on one task. They would go and hunt, right? And then when the men would leave, what would happen? They would leave the women, the children, the elders behind in the village. So women had to constantly be scanning for yes. every permutation of every possible thing that could go wrong at any moment and have a plan for what could go wrong at every moment. It's yeah. just how our brains are wired, right? Yeah. We have to protect the village yeah. when we don't have the protectors there and even when they are there. So I think you, you, you look at that framing genetically traditionally, that that is sort of behavioral patterns, I think that do fall that are gendered in a way or more about Masculine, feminine energy, really than gendered energy, um, and I do think that that's why women just have been doing it for generations, so much longer. I, don't I think you're onto something. It goes back to the village, 100. So we got to be like, okay, this person could die. That that one star. Okay, how do we like juggle? Like you gotta just be exactly. constantly doing damage control, and that's really what production is of any type. You have a, a group of people who are collaborating on an artistic goal, which is already inherently complicated for one person to do. You have now hundreds of people coming together with a vision everybody has who are humans and feel different ways about different things at every given day because of what is happening in their lives because they're not robots so you have to take so much into consideration that i do think it takes it generally seems to be more uh i don't want to say productive but just The success rate I have found and now doing so many of these and how women navigate stepping into that position of leadership and how they navigate that is, is inherently different than how men do it. It's not to say that there aren't men that are this way as well, but that is what I have observed in my 10 plus years of the business, specifically on sets, and by having now over, you know, however many, I would think almost like 90 women predominantly come on the show and tell me about their experiences. So Well, and then somehow you have to inject some fun in there for the team.
1: (laughs) So it's all of those things. And then they also... You got to be soccer mom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone actually wants it to be fun. So, yeah.
0: Yes, you got to be fun, but then you got to be stern. And then, you know, people got to be back before coffee. It's like all the things that you have to be. But I mean, you know, and obviously these issues aren't exclusive to animation, but I I always think about how do we... Help, Right. How do we instead of sitting on mic and just talking about, gee, yeah, there's much progress that has been made, but we still have such a long way to go. And it starts with education. Right. So how do we educate more women specifically about the career paths that exist in animation? How do we empower them to pursue more technical roles that generally males will occupy so that they can we can reach a little bit more of that balance?
1: I think some of it, too, is uh, is the artistic side. Women need to be unafraid and unapologetic about being creators. I think there's some great ideas coming from women that aren't seen, and it, I, I'm not sure why. I, I don't know why that is, but I would love to see more women directors and more women, you know, creative leads. I think that would be great, but they just have to be unafraid, fearless. Yeah their ideas out there. Um, I think as far as producing, I mean, I feel like as far as Riot's concerned, they make it very easy for women to be seen, in my opinion. Um, From what I've seen, especially in the entertainment group, I don't know about the gaming side, but I have no complaints at Riot about that, about discrimination in any way whatsoever. I think there's a lot of strong women in leadership positions there now. But yeah, I, I just think you just got to just be fearless. Yeah.
0: So easy to say, right? But so hard I know. to do. Just be
1: fearless. <laughs> it's easy. I'm no fear. Yeah.
0: yeah, just go for it. Go for the things that you go want. Go for it. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about challenges, right? Because one of the things that I am obsessed with on this show is understanding how people stay resilient to navigate an industry that can be so volatile. Um, so when you were first coming up, what were some of the struggles you had early on How did you overcome them? And maybe even now, you know, when you get knocked down by an experience, a job that you really wanted, you didn't get or a relationship ending, whatever that looks like for you. Like, how do you navigate all of that? So the first it's like eight questions in one. But the first one is just like struggles you had coming up. And then the second is overcoming those. And then the second is when you get knocked down now later in your career, how do you rebound, suit up and keep showing up with a smile on your face?
1: It is not an easy business. I will say that to whoever's listening and wants to grow in this business. It's not an easy one because it is volatile and you have to be ready for anything like a writer's strike to happen or, you Mm know, suddenly everything shuts down or shows gets canceled. um, You get replaced for some crazy reason. I mean, things just really, it's, it's a volatile business. You either have to really, really love it or, um, just be a sucker for punishment, because sometimes it's really hard. But the good things that come out of it are really good. So it's like, I think for me, growing up in this business, the things I had to overcome, a lot of it, to be honest, had to do with immaturity and growth. um, Just as a person, you know, I started when I was 21 years old. So I had a lot to learn. I didn't think I did in my 20s not really. You I never do. I, I thought I knew it all. And I didn't. Yeah. I didn't, And I handled things really poorly sometimes and in, in an immature way. And as I, as I got older, I learned how to deal with things better. Now it's so funny because I get from some of my coworkers who said, gosh, you just, you have such a calming presence. Like you're so calm. And I'm like, that's hilarious. So when I was in my 20s, not so calm, right? <laughs> you, just, you learn over the years. So a lot of it's just cutting yourself some slack right? Mm. Buy yourself some slack. When you're in your 20s, you're growing. Even in your 30s, you're still growing. You're learning. And if you don't get the right thing, it just wasn't meant to be. I'm a firm believer. And if it doesn't happen, it wasn't meant to be. And really having peace in that, that there is something better out there, even if you don't know what that's going to be. There's always something. And if you're good at what you do and really good at what you do, and you treat people well, those doors will continue to open, I think. I only say that because I had no idea I would still be in this business this long. Why? I, I Because it is so competitive. Mm. It's so competitive. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are really good at this kind of thing. But it's, you know, people have to like you first, first and foremost. They really have to like yeah. who you are and, and feel that you're genuine and you're coming from a good place. And you have to be good at what you do. So it's both, right? Yeah on my team i always say it's the perfect place for imperfect people because i never want anyone to feel like they can't make mistakes cuz for me growing up in the business i felt like i couldn't make mistakes it was i was in fear all the time and i don't want to have a fear based culture on the team yeah that really helps too is just allowing yourself to be vulnerable and allowing yourself to just take chances and if you make a mistake get up and keep going yeah.
0: Have you ever had any experiences that knocked you off so hard, though, that maybe it took you a beat, or I don't know, maybe even made you question, is this the right path for you? You know, I absolutely
1: did have that situation happen yeah. to me before, and um, it was rough. I had had, um, I'll open up here a little bit, but I had gone through a couple of miscarriages, mm. um, a divorce, and my mom. And my mom was going through breast cancer, and my dad passed away. Wow. And I was told at Disney at that time, we're not hiring producers anymore because we have to make budget cuts. So it was like everything came crashing to an end for me. And it was a very, very hard, traumatic time in my life. But I picked myself up. You have to keep going, you know? And I offered uh, a position at Audio Circus, which is a sound studio where I ran a sound studio for about six years with um, a very dear friend of mine. And thank God for that, because that gave me the strength to kind of go on and utilize what skills I had without all the pressure of producing. So I needed that time to sort of recover, regroup. It's life. People go through things, right? Yeah. Yeah. You do what you have to do to recover and, and build your resiliency up again. Yeah. And I did. And then a friend of mine, Tony Craig, he calls me and he's like, hey, I want you to produce this. I don't want anybody else to do this little show for Hallmark with me. Can you do it with me? And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then I was
0: right back into it again. Yeah. So, yeah, and the rest is
1: kind of history.
0: You have to trust the journey, right? It's like so easy when you look back because then you can see, oh, yeah, this is how the dots connected. And if I hadn't done this and if I hadn't gone through that, like, but when you're in it, I think that's where it's so tricky to navigate it. I've always wanted the show to create a space where people could talk very openly about all of that. So thank you for sharing that and going there.
1: Yeah, of course. And you know, your stock rises and it falls. So right now, I'm I my stock's high. It's Arcane. Woo! Yay! But Arcane isn't going to be around forever, right? It'll fall again, because that's yeah. the nature of the business. But right now, I'm enjoying it while it lasts, because I know it's not going to be here forever. So- You just enjoy the ride because it's a ride. It's a roller coaster. And that's okay because that's also what life is. So you just have to just roll with it, you know?
0: You just roll with it. That's right. (laughs) Let's go to the lightning round. First question. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Anything by Duran Duran. (laughs) (laughs) What is the latest piece of art that moved you? Could be a book, a film, a show, anything.
1: I was in Paris recently at the uh, Musee d'Arcee and I saw a lot of impressionistic art, but probably Van Gogh, anything Van Gogh. Just was so amazing. Yeah.
0: Sounds kind of braggy. Well, I was in Paris and, you know, at the Musee. This is a real life experience you had. If people feel like it's braggy, then that's on them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress.
1: Working out. Or a glass of wine whichever or both exactly. at the same
0: time yes <laughs> what is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made and it doesn't have to be financial
1: the most worthwhile investment i've ever made without a doubt is my daughter that i recently adopted <laughs>
0: congratulations thank you I how old how old is she She's
1: 28 Oh,
0: long story <laughs> oh i can't wait to hear She's been it Been in my life since she was 15 and
1: I just love her to pieces, so. Mm,
0: I love that. Okay, so this is the last question. This closes us out. It is Borrowing from Inside the Actor Studio, which is one of my favorite shows coming up because I'm deeply curious about people's journeys. And the question, which was inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pavot, which is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: Mm, I believe it does exist. And I would just hope that he would say... Well done. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Well, thank you so much. I know so this like ended on kind of on like a show. very emotional. Dour note. Yeah, that's on <laughs> me because so I asked yeah. this very heavy no, question at the good. end. And it's like, you know. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.